0: Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Last week Tyler Fullerton kicked off our series in the book of Ecclesiastes by speaking about his journey of lost faith and this week we pick up part 2 with a teaching entitled Doubt and Faith. As we dive into the book of Ecclesiastes there are three important questions we need to ask. Now, these three questions are questions we should all ask whenever we open a new book of the Bible. And the three questions are this. When was Ecclesiastes written? Who wrote Ecclesiastes? And what is the thesis statement of Ecclesiastes? So let's begin with the first question. When was Ecclesiastes written? The answer is 400 BCE. To give you some historical context on 400 BCE, we need to go back 1,600 years before Ecclesiastes was written, where we arrive at the life of a man named Jacob and his 12 sons. Sometime around the year 2000 BCE, Jacob and his 12 sons were driven out of their homeland of Canaan into Egypt due to a severe drought. And while they were in Egypt, they lived in harmony with the Egyptians until Jacob and his sons died. Eventually, a new pharaoh rose to power, and he did not know Jacob and his sons, and so this pharaoh enslaved the Israelites. This enslavement went on for 10 generations, 400 years, until God heard the cries of the oppressed and then liberated the Israelites from slavery and led them into the promised land. For the next 400 years, the tribes of Israel were nomadic tribes who were ruled by judges, Until sometime around the 11th century BCE, they decided to unite and crown one king as king over them all, a man named Saul. After Saul's death, Saul's house was overthrown by a man named David, who took the throne. And then David's son, a man named Solomon, took the throne sometime around 1000 BCE. Now Solomon was considered by many to be the wisest and the most powerful king who led Israel into a time of prosperity. But after his death, his son, a man named Rehoboam, took the throne and the people of the north did not like this. And so the north seceded from the nation and formed their own nation named Israel with their capital in Samaria and a new king on the throne named Jeroboam. And so for 200 years, there are two kingdoms of Israel. The kingdom to the north is known as Israel and the kingdom to the south, which is where David's lineage reigns in Jerusalem, is known as Judah. So these two nations war with each other. They sometimes form treaties with each other. It is complicated for 200 years until a neighbor from the north, the nation of Assyria, comes in and conquers the northern kingdom of Israel, and Israel is no more. Judah is able to hang on for 136 more years before Babylon, an empire to the east, arrives at their doorstep and conquers Jerusalem levels the city, and forces its inhabitants to come back with them to Babylon to live in exile. It is while the people of Judah are living in exile that they start to realize that they may not be around for a while. So it's here that they start to write their stories, their laws, and their history down. These writings would eventually become the Bible. A whole generation lives in exile before another empire from the south, the Persian Empire, comes into Babylon and conquers them. They then free the Jews and allow them to go back home to the land of Canaan, to Jerusalem, and live there under Persian rule. So the Jews return in 539 to 538 BCE, and they begin to rebuild their city and their temple. After about 100 years we arrive at the time that most scholars believe that Ecclesiastes was written. Now just imagine being in this scenario in Jerusalem 2400 years ago. You can imagine there are a lot of political and religious questions that are happening as they are under Persian rule. Questions like should we reinstate the monarchy? Does God care about us? Is God even real? Those are the questions that form the backdrop of what Ecclesiastes is and what led to Ecclesiastes being written. So when was Ecclesiastes written? Sometime around the 5th century BCE. Which brings us to the second question that we must ask. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? And the answer to that question is, we don't know. What we do know is that there are two voices in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the first voice is revealed in verse 1. We read these words in Ecclesiastes 1.1. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So from this verse, we read that we're about to hear the words of a king that lived in Jerusalem, who was a son of David. Not only that, but if you look closely at the words, we read the words of the teacher, and the teacher here is translated from the Hebrew word Kohelet. Now, if we go to the books of first and second kings in the Bible, we find that every king who reigned on the throne of Jerusalem, who was a descendant of David, is listed in their chronological order. And none of these kings are named Kohelet. Now, when we read the book of Ecclesiastes and hear the words of Kohelet, we read about how Kohelet is rich and powerful and is considered by many to be the wisest king who ever lived. And so many people assume that Kohelet is kind of a pen name for Solomon. There's just two problems with this. One, uh, Kohelet never identifies himself as Solomon. And two, Ecclesiastes was written about 600 years after The life of Solomon. So, who is Cohelet? Well, to understand who Cohelet is, I want to talk about one of the great films in cinematic history, Citizen Kane. Now, Citizen Kane was written, directed, and starred in by none other than Orson Welles. Now, Citizen Kane is set in the late 19th and early 20th century about a newspaper magnate in New York who ended up growing one of the great imposing newspaper monopolies in American history. This eventually leads to him purchasing an opulent castle in California, and the movie goes on to show how he dies surrounded by wealth, but ultimately alone. Now, if you know anything about business history within America, this would immediately remind you of the real-life person, William Randolph Hearst, Hearst built a newspaper empire from scratch in the late 19th and early 20th century and became one of the most powerful men in American business. Not only that, but he eventually purchased a property which would eventually become Hearst Castle. And while he was still living, while Citizen Kane was released, you can imagine that he saw some parallels between his life and that of Charles Foster Kane. Now, Orson Welles throughout his life denied that Charles Foster Kane was meant to embody or symbolize the life of William Randolph Hearst. But when you look at it today, it is hard to deny the parallels and acknowledge the influence of William Randolph Hearst's real life on the fictitious life of Charles Foster Kane. Now, why do I tell you all this? It's because Charles Foster Kane is a fictitious personified allegory of the real life William Randolph Hearst. Now, this brings us back to Kohelet, who we hear about is a son of David, who is king in Jerusalem, who is wise and rich and powerful, and it immediately reminds us of Solomon. Kohelet is a fictitious personified allegory of the life of King Solomon. We can picture an author looking back six centuries before at the beginning of the monarchy at the life of Solomon and thinking to himself, What would Solomon say if he were here with us today? So Kohelet is the main voice and the main character of the book of Ecclesiastes. But there is a second voice that we spoke about earlier. And the second voice is the voice of the author and the narrator. It's here that most people instantly assume that the author and narrator is a man. But because we fight the patriarchy here at Paradox we're going to assume that the author is a woman, and we will refer to her as the authoress. Now, I have no proof that the authoress is, in fact, a woman. We are just making that assumption because the language that she uses is very gender-neutral, and there's no clues to say that, well, it's absolutely a man. So the two voices in Ecclesiastes is the voice of Kohelet and the voice of the authoress, but they do not speak for an equal amount of time. Kohelet speaks for 215 verses, and the authoris speaks for only seven. Not only that, but one of those seven verses is the very first verse that we just read from Ecclesiastes 1.1, the words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So while Ecclesiastes is 12 chapters long, the authoress only has six verses left to speak. So who wrote Ecclesiastes? Uh, We don't know. And from that question, we move to our final question before we get to the writings of Ecclesiastes, which is, what is the thesis of Ecclesiastes? Now, before we get to the actual thesis, I want to ask you a question. What do you expect Kohelet to say? Kohelet is the main voice in the writings of Ecclesiastes, and this book is in the Bible. Not only that, but you have to start thinking like a 4th century Jew in an attempt to understand what Kohelet is trying to say. Now, theology has changed a whole lot in 2400 years. To give you some perspective on that, we are closer by 4 centuries to the year 4000 CE than we are to when the authors were writing these words we're about to read. So in the 4th and 5th century BCE, with all of this turmoil and upheaval, a Jew is about to write, and they have a very different theological understanding of the world than we have today. One major difference was that there was this understanding that if you lived a life of privilege, it was a sign of God's favor. So if you are rich, it's because God wanted you to be rich, wanted to reward you for the good life you had led. If you were powerful, it's because God wanted you to be powerful as a way of saying thank you for living a godly life. If you lived a long time, then God granted you those years out of thankfulness for your obedience. So when we read the words of Kohelet, who is a wise and rich and powerful and old king, we expect to read the words, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. So it's a bit surprising when the first words out of Kohelet's mouth is this: Vanity of vanities, says Kohelet. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And this is the thesis statement of Ecclesiastes. Everything is vanity. Now, vanity here is translated from the Hebrew word hevel. Now, some translations translate hevel as meaningless. So Kohelet's thesis statement is meaningless of meaningless. All is meaningless. I've heard one biblical scholar refer to hevel as stupid. So what he believes Kohelet is saying is stupid of stupids. All is stupid. And because this is the thesis statement, we all of a sudden come to the realization that Kohelet is going to spend the next 12 chapters convincing us that life is stupid. So let's read all of chapter one and hear about how Kohelet believes that life is stupid. Verse three, he says, what do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down, and hurries to the place where it rises the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north round and round goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns all streams run to the sea but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow there they continue to flow all things are wearisome more than one can express the eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. The people of long ago are not remembered, nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. I, Kohelet, when king over Israel, In Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see all is vanity and a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a chasing after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. That is the end of chapter one. But Kohelet continues to speak about the meaningless nature of life for the next 11 chapters. And when I read Kohelet today in 2019, he reminds me of a nihilist. Now, a nihilist, according to the dictionary, is a person who believes that life is meaningless and rejects all religious and moral principles. Now, nihilism is a smaller section of a bigger umbrella known as atheism. This does not mean that all atheists are nihilists, but all nihilists are, in fact, atheists. And when you look at what an atheist is, according to the dictionary, an atheist is a person who disbelieves or lacks belief in the existence of God or gods. So in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, talks about God, but it's almost always a negative connotation. And while someone may point to him talking about God and saying, oh, see, he's not an atheist, I would say, yes, but this story was written 2,400 years ago. I have very little doubt in my mind that if the authoress was writing this story today in 2019 in America, she would classify or tell the story of from Kohelet's perspective as a nihilist or an atheist. Now, with that in mind, let's go back and reread a couple of verses from that first chapter, as well as point out some other verses in this book in Ecclesiastes to demonstrate how Kohelet is, in fact, a nihilist or an atheist. If we go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, we read, I, Kohelet, when king over Israel and Jerusalem applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. What Kohelet is saying there, is he is saying if there is a God, then this God cannot be good. In chapter three, Kohelet says, for the fate of humans and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Who knows whether the human spirit goes upward and the spirit of animals goes downward to the earth. What Kohelet is telling us here is that we are all going to die and we have no proof that heaven exists. In the fifth chapter, Kohelet says, Likewise, all to whom God gives wealth and possessions and whom he enables to enjoy them and to accept their lot and find enjoyment in their toil, this is the gift of God. In other words, it feels like Kohelet is telling us that God is a fabricated coping mechanism designed to comfort the harsh realities of life. And this goes on from chapter 6 to chapter 7 to chapter 8, all the way to chapter 12, when Kohelet finally stops speaking in verse 8 and he says these words Vanity of vanities, says Kohelet, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Kohelet begins and ends his speech with the same words, his thesis statement, which is, all is meaningless, all is stupid, all is vanity. Now, if you're hearing this as a 4th or 5th century BCE Jew, you are thinking to yourself, wait a second, Kohelet isn't supposed to say this. This is supposed to be the guy who has it all figured out. This is the guy that God has blessed. He is supposed to tell us that God is good. And yet he's telling us that God and life and our existence is worthless. Imagine for a moment if you were to go to a church service on a weekend. And you go and you sit down in your chair or in your pew. And you listen as the pastor begins to speak. And the pastor tells you, hey, everyone, I got to tell you, I've been thinking about life a lot lately, and life is meaningless. Let's close with prayer. You would look at your friends that were around you, your family, and you would say to them, hey, the pastor isn't supposed to say this. I can feel this, but the pastor is supposed to be the one who figures it out and says, oh, no, 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 guys, God has this. Let me tell you why God is for us and not against us. Let me tell you why God has a plan. It's all supposed to work out. Not only that, but you look at this story and it's in the Bible. And if you read this story of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, you may be thinking to yourself, hey, the Bible isn't supposed to say this. And while it's surprising that these words are found in a book of the Bible, I find it equally surprising what happens 200 years after Ecclesiastes is written. Because in 332 BCE, the Greeks show up and they conquer Jerusalem, and they reign over Jerusalem for about 170 years until the Maccabees revolt and kick the Greeks out, surprisingly. And it's here that the Hasmonean dynasty begins, and this is the first period of freedom that the people of Jerusalem, the Jews, have felt since 586 BCE. And with their freedom, the religious leaders began to say, let's make a book of our most sacred writings. So there was probably some committee meeting that happened to put the Hebrew Bible together, even though we don't know a whole lot about it. And you can imagine this committee meeting. There are people that are going back and forth and talking about what books should be in. And there's near unanimous consent that the books of Moses should be in and the history should be in. But then there's some debate about some of the smaller books. And at this meeting, some guy stood up and said, you know what we need to include? We need to include the writings from that guy who is certain that life is meaningless. Now I'm sure there was some debate, but eventually the committee decided, yes, let's include the writings where Kohelet tells us that life is meaningless. And if you're like me, there is a question in your head. What is happening? I can definitely wrap my head around this committee hearing the words of David. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. And this committee says to themselves, yeah, let's keep that in the Bible. But that same committee heard Kohelet saying flowing streams are a testament to the emptiness of life. And those same guys looked at each other and said, yeah, let's put that in the Bible. Biblical scholar Peter Enns has this to say, if faith in God makes zero sense to you and reasons for trusting God have fallen off the cliff of despair, you've got a friend in the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I tell you all this because when we consider the Bible, we have to admit that the inclusion of Ecclesiastes in the biblical canon is stunning. Let's imagine that we are living in America without a Bible today. And it was up to American Christian pastors to put together a Bible that speaks to 2019 today. I can't imagine them including the book of Ecclesiastes in that new Bible. Can you? (laughs) I mean, life is meaningless. Yes, put that in. And yet that's what we ended up with. So here in the Bible... We have a book whose thesis statement is that life is meaningless. And so faithful preaching to this book should in fact state that life is meaningless. And so my brothers and sisters, may you always remember that no matter what you do or what you accomplish or where you go with your life, it is always meaningless. May we see and embrace. I'm just kidding, that's not where this ends. Um, although you should have seen the look on your face. it's a good time. It's a good time. Now you may be saying to yourself, well, Craig, you said there was a second voice, the authoress. She hasn't spoken yet. And you told us that she still gets six verses. So maybe the authoress can turn all of this around in six verses to which I would say, "Uh, I don't know if she turns it around, but I will tell you this. The authoress teaches us three things in six verses. So, Kohelet speaks for 12 chapters. He begins and ends this speech with the same thesis statement, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And after this 12-chapter-long speech, the authoress then speaks in verse 9 of chapter 12. She writes, Besides being wise, Kohelet also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs. Kohelet sought to find pleasing words, and he wrote words of truth plainly. Now, if you're like me, you read these words and you are shocked. She listens for 12 chapters to what Kohelet has to say she doesn't interrupt him she doesn't correct him she doesn't say kohelet you've got it all wrong let me tell you about the grace of god and how you can know that god is good and that your life has purpose she doesn't do any of those instead you know what she says kohelet is wise kohelet has great knowledge Kohelet desired to tell us words that we wanted to hear. And instead, he chose words of truth. Now, throughout most of my ministerial career, I have been accused of being a liberal. I am told that I am too liberal with text. I am told that I am too liberal in the way that I speak about atheists and agnostics. And I am told that I am too liberal with my understanding and views of heaven. But here's what's crazy. (laughs) The book of Ecclesiastes is in the Bible. And in this book, we have an author who, rather than correcting what the atheist says, points to his words and says, hey, there's a lot of wisdom here. We can learn a lot from this man. The first thing that the authorist teaches us in these last six verses is this. The biblical tradition... Not being liberal, but the tradition is when the faithful listen to and acknowledge the wisdom in the words of atheists. When was the last time you heard a Christian pastor point to an atheist and say, oh, that atheist over there, she is wise and we have much to learn from her. I mean, it never happens, right? And yet the tradition, according to Ecclesiastes, is to do just that, to listen to and acknowledge the wisdom in the words of atheists. Now, I wish someone would have taught me this before I went to college, because I went to college at the one and only Montana State University. Now, people have asked me, what is Montana State University like? And I've responded, it's a lot like Harvard, because it is. And it was there that I met my friend who I've spoken about on this podcast and who was on last week's podcast, Tyler Fullerton. Tyler was an agnostic until he met me, and then he became full-blown atheist because I apparently suck at my job. And while we were at college, Tyler and I would go back and forth and we'd argue about the age of the earth and what mattered and what was valuable and who God was. And I remember I often thought to myself, man, Tyler, you are so wrong. There were even times that I told him, Tyler, you are so wrong, and he would laugh at me and then say, okay, Craig, can you tell me about the age of the dinosaurs again? And I was told over and over again in church school and in church that it was my job to prove Tyler wrong, because if I could reason with Tyler, he would convert to my religion. What I wish someone would have taught me was the book of Ecclesiastes, and they would have told me on a consistent basis, you know, Craig, as a Christian... You can learn a lot by listening to and acknowledging the wisdom in the words of atheists. How different would everything have been for me if I was taught that from the very beginning? So this lesson that the authoress teaches us, this idea that we can acknowledge the wisdom in and learn from atheists, is an imperative one for us to adopt in the church today. Which brings us to the second thing that she teaches us in these last six verses. Now last weekend, Tyler came to Paradox and he began to speak about some of his problems with faith and why he walked away. Now as Tyler went on, I was on stage interviewing him and I could sense in the congregation that people were becoming more uncomfortable. They were becoming more uncomfortable because, you know, Tyler was bringing up some really good points and it made people all of a sudden start to question things they hadn't questioned before. It would be exactly like what would happen if I stood up in front of a congregation and just read Ecclesiastes from cover to cover and then sat down. There would be a great deal of discomfort because these are unsettling words. So the authorist taps into this in verses 11 and 12 when she writes, the sayings of the wise are like goads. Now goads were sharpened sticks that shepherds used to guide sheep and they often inflicted pain on the sheep. So she's saying the sayings of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. Of anything beyond these, my child, beware of making many books, there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh so what the authoress is doing here is she's saying do these words from Kohelet make you uncomfortable of course they do and you can spend all kinds of time trying to defend your faith in front of Kohelet you can write books and do research projects but that energy is a weariness of the flesh it is much better in the author's opinion to pay attention to the discomfort and the words of the atheists than trying to defend your faith often. Now, let me show you what these goads look like throughout church history in just three short vignettes, if I could. In the 17th century, a man named Galileo invented the telescope. And with this invention of the telescope, he could then scientifically prove that the earth revolved around the sun, and not the other way around. Now the church was very nervous at this proclamation and this observation. There were several verses throughout the Bible that talked about the sun revolving around the earth. So if Galileo could prove that that wasn't the case, then the church was worried because they had this sense that no one would read the Bible anymore because the Bible would be then perceived as untrue. And if the Bible is untrue, then why are we reading it in the first place? So the church put Galileo on trial. They found him guilty of heresy, and they put him under house arrest. Why? To protect the Bible. Yet here we are, 400 years later, with rocket ships and astronauts and telescopes in space, and we're still reading the Bible. And the work of Galileo was like a sharp goad in the church's side, he asked the church to recognize that they were living in a much bigger reality than the Bible testified to. Something very similar happened in London in 1859. It was here that Charles Darwin published a book called The Origin of the Species. In that book, he proposed his thesis statement, The idea that each species was independently created is erroneous. Now, the church heard this, and it was like a sharp goad in the church's side. And the arguments were the same as they were two centuries before in Rome with Galileo. How can you say this, Charles Darwin? Because if you're telling us this is true, then the Bible is null, it's void, no one will read it, no one will trust it, and your work is making us uncomfortable. Yet, here we are 150 years later, and we are still reading the Bible. In Pasadena in 1956, a man named Claire Cameron Patterson used all sorts of chemistry and technology that I can't even begin to fathom to figure out that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. This made the church uncomfortable because the church stood up and said, you can't say that, Claire Cameron Patterson, because the Bible tells us that the universe is only 6,000 years old. And if what you're telling us is true, then no one will read the Bible. And yet here we are, 60 years later, and we're still reading the Bible. When I look at the work of Claire Cameron Patterson, of Charles Darwin, and of Galileo, I am reminded of the words of the authoress. The sayings of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. The authoress would not be threatened by the work of Darwin, of Patterson, and Galileo. Instead, she would recognize it as collected sayings that are given by the one shepherd of God. Now, this science may make us uncomfortable just in the same way that the authoress is telling these words of Kohelet may make you uncomfortable. But we can learn something from these uncomfortable teachings. And almost always the thing that we learn is that God is bigger than what we thought before. And the thing that Kohelet and Galileo and Charles Darwin and Claire Cameron Patterson were trying to push us toward is this idea that God is infinitely bigger than religion. God is always bigger than religion. And yet we are tempted to think that we know all there is to know about God right here today today. So we shun and we push away people who fall outside the religious box and say, no, 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 they can't teach us anything else. Now you may feel, once again, that I am being too liberal with the text. But this is a very old and scriptural idea. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John, John ends his Gospel by saying that he left out all kinds of stories about Jesus. And if he could somehow include all of the stories about Jesus, could somehow capture who this Jesus Christ actually was, well then, John says, I don't think the world would be big enough to hold that many pages. In other words, John is telling us that God is infinitely bigger than religion, and we can't reduce God to a thousand pages in the Bible. We always have to be aware and recognize that God is infinitely bigger than the religion, the book, and the church. The second thing that the authoress teaches us in these last six verses is that God is infinitely bigger than religion. Which brings us to the third thing. And the third thing is found in the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. She writes, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. Now fear God in our modern mindset in 2019 sounds like we should be afraid of God. This was an ancient Jewish saying which encouraged people to seek wisdom. And the way they sought wisdom was to recognize that there was more to know than they could possibly know. And so the way that they said this was fear God. So she writes, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments for that is the whole duty of everyone. Now, when we read this in 2019, we are a Christian church. And so we interpret this through a Christian lens. There's nothing wrong with reading the Old Testament through a Christian lens as long as you know that you are reading it through a Christian lens with a Christian bias. So when I hear her say, the authoress say, that we must keep the commandments for that is the whole duty of everyone, I am immediately transported to Matthew chapter 22. And we talk about this all the time at Paradox. It's here that Jesus was sitting in the shadow of the temple the epicenter of the Jewish faith of his day, when the religious leaders approached him and asked him what the greatest commandment was. He responded by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He then goes on to say, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is saying here is like, hey, I know you probably like studying the Bible, but let me save you a lot of time. The whole reason you study the Bible is to grow in love for other people and for God. So when the authoress writes that our purpose is to seek wisdom and keep God's commandments, what she is saying is we should seek wisdom and learn how to love more, for that is the whole duty of everyone. And what's interesting to me is that both the authoress and Jesus are not obsessed with being right. They don't give us a lot of detailed arguments about how to pick apart Kohelet or how to pick apart people who tell us that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. But instead they say, you know what matters is how you love others and how you love God. Being right is not the purpose of your religion. And so the third thing that this authoress teaches us in these last six verses is this. The purpose of Christianity is to inspire us to love. It's not to be right about the age of the earth. It's not to be right about a flood. It's not to be right about astronomy and all of these things. No, the purpose of Christianity is to inspire us to love. So now, when someone begins to object or say things that are different from my faith, thanks to books like Ecclesiastes, I now know there is a sacred path in listening to them and acknowledging the wisdom in their words. To remind myself that if their words make me uncomfortable, that it's like a goad asking me to see that God is bigger than my religion. And then... I now ask a question in my head. Do I want to be right? Or do I want to be loving? Because now when people ask me about why I am a Christian, I respond by saying, well, my Christianity helps me to love more. My Christianity helps me to apologize when my ego wants me to be stubborn. Or my Christianity asks me to find a way to give someone a second chance, even if I don't think he or she deserves it. Time has taught me that love is not exclusive to Christianity. And other people find greater love once they leave Christianity. I understand that testimony as well. But for me, my Christianity inspires me to be a more loving person. And I believe that if the authoress was with us here today, she would write and she would say, do not worry about being right, but instead focus on growing in love, because that is the purpose of your religion. My brothers and sisters, may we listen to and acknowledge the wisdom in the words of atheists. When we hear uncomfortable words, may we remind ourselves that God is infinitely bigger than religion. And may we stay laser focused on the purpose of Christianity, which is to inspire us to love. And may you and I see and embrace the image of Christ.